Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC 263, Adesanya versus Vittori 2. I'm Paul Shaughnessy. Pat Mayo's on the sticks, and I'm joined by the power of Zoom by Cody Saftik on the line. How's it going this week, buddy? Yeah, good as always, man. We got a big pay-per-view coming up. It seems like the Davidson Figueredo just ends up on these big cards, and it's a pretty nice offering from top to bottom. Like, we'll talk about the main card portion that is what they're trying to get you to buy, but even the featured prelim and, and then on, like, they've really done a good job. And What we see every week now is the UFC's putting on 14, 15 fights in anticipation that few of them are going to fall off, but they haven't, knock on wood anyways, like, they haven't been falling apart. We've been getting some uh, some pretty good shows, so... Of heels of a profitable week last week, I think we should just keep the ball rolling and uh, make it another one. Hundred percent. Yeah, you got to figure like with like vaccination rates up, and you know most people have been vaxxed. I imagine most of the fighters have been vaxxed. People are just not getting COVID nearly on the same rate as they were before. Math, science, I guess that's more like it. But uh, yeah, main event here. We've got a a, uh, a rematch between Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori, but the fight that they had was quite a long time ago and it was three rounds obviously between these two guys a little bit earlier on in their career israel adesanya minus 265 favor vittori can be had for plus 215 over under in this fight is set at four and a half rounds minus 130 to the over plus 100 to the under cody saftik take it away yeah i mean it's a good fight i think it's Marvin Vittori's done a pretty good job of improving over the years, winning a couple fights and then putting himself in a good position. With Israel Adesanya, he had this aura to him where he's just like un- invincible. No one's going to touch this guy. He's the middleweight goat. He's the best. He's better than Anderson Silva. His reign shows it. But I think you can pinpoint a lot of issues, so to speak, throughout his, his, his run. Either he goes out there and he's gangbuster or eh, maybe it's just kind of a bit of a lackluster performance. His fight with Vittori once upon a time, which was a split decision for him, was kind of lackluster. But you look at specifically his fight with Anderson Silva, right? Not very good, right? And mind you, he's fighting the legend. He's fighting his idol. He doesn't pull the trigger. You give him a pass there. But not a great performance in a fight that goes the distance with with an aged veteran, right? The Kelvin Gastelum fight. He's 2-2 going into the fifth round with a welterweight Kelvin Gastelum. Head kicked, hurt, injured. Not injured, but, you know, pushed to the the very limit. Comes through with an excellent fifth round, wins the fight. Still, Kelvin Gastelum had stretched him. The Robert Whitaker fight, Whitaker's got a bunch of injuries, been on a layoff, you know, maybe had a con- some concussion issues that were still lingering. He gets knocked out. Beautiful performance, beautiful knockout. But does does two bad performances and then one sweet knockout, does that put you back on top? Apparently it does. Everyone's back on the bandwagon. I don't he know if everyone's Romero. back on the bandwagon. Well, everybody's back on the wagon. He fights Yul Romero, and it's the worst fight of all time. Oh, okay? you're talking. He, okay. he probably loses the fight. But still, there's still an aura. Wow. Israel Adesat. Knocked out Robert Whitaker, who was the last champion and the last great champion, so to speak. You know, the, the Yol fight's not good. The Paulo Costa fight, again, it's a good result for Israel Adesanya, but just such a weird game plan from Paulo. He didn't do anything. He fought the same way Yol did, which is just stand in front of him, never let his hands go, blamed it on some wine from the night before. Just very weird altogether. All and then now, now, on the basis of that run, he needs to move up to 205 and fight John Jones. And they're, they're talking about a super fight. They're talking about how good Izzy's striking is. It's next level. Takedown defense. Eh, apparently it's improved. We haven't really seen it improve, but 
Yol never even really attempted to take him down. It was just a strange situation all around. So he gets in this fight with Jan Blokowicz. You know, rewatching it, same as when you watch it live, nothing really happens in the early portions. But you would give the first two rounds for, for Israel Adesanya, I find. And then the third is a close round, you know, edged towards the later part of the round towards Jan. And then the fourth and fifth come down to those single takedowns from Jan. The single takedowns are what's winning for him. But I mean, Izzy didn't look good. He is a natural counterpuncher, but at 205, the power didn't translate. The sharpness didn't translate. The speed wasn't quite there. He weighed in at 200 pounds, mm-hmm. not 205. Clear indication that he walks around at 200 pounds. Fair. Didn't have to cut the weight. The takedown defense, I mean, Paul, he wasn't even trying to stuff the takedowns. He was just getting taken down on the first shot from Jan every time. Why Jan waited till two minutes left in the rounds to shoot the takedown? I don't know. Probably good ring IQ, you know, strike with him a little bit. Take him down near the part, the, the end. Hold him down, win the round, secure the victory, which he did. How does Marvin replicate the same thing Jan did? Well, I mean, he's got a great chin as well. He'll be able to march down Izzy a little bit. Same thing that Gaston was able to do. If you if you are able to march him back, I don't think he's nearly as effective. Don't give him time to set up, but he has to mix in those takedowns. And this really does come down to Marvin as a live dog uh, uh, situation, but it also comes down to what kind of game plan Marvin Vittori is going to fight. When you look at him, specifically, let's talk about the last two fights because that's what got him into title contention. But the Jack Hermanson fight, 164 significant strikes landed over the course of 25 minutes, right? All he does is march him back and just put great volume on him. A similar game plan would, I think, be somewhat effective against Israel Adesanya. Move him back and output, output, output. Listen, he doesn't love to throw 100 significant strikes. He likes to get it done with that one combination that lands and puts you over. I don't think he's going to knock out Marvin Vittori. Therefore, Marvin could theoretically back him up, pressure him, and it would land him. But Marvin's very next fight, he goes from 164 significant strikes over 25 minutes, right, to the very next fight against Kevin Holland, also 25 minutes, lands 24 significant strikes. The difference there is the 11 takedowns. So we know Marvin can wrestle. We know Marvin can strike. How do you beat Israel Adesanya? By mimicking Young Blokovic's game plan? Strike with them for the first two, three minutes of the round. Try to back them up and then mix in those takedowns. I think Marvin's able to do it. He's already fought him once. He's already seen his best shots once. The kid is just one of these like hungry, in-your-face, hyper-aggressive guy. And whereas, again, two fights ago, people are claiming, yeah, I don't know if he can fight five rounds. Well, we know now that he can fight five rounds. Uh, did so against Hermanson, where it looked like he tired yeah. after the third and then yeah. caught a second win, came back in fourth and fifth. And then the Holland fight, I don't know. He just kept routinely grounding him, but does it for the course of 25 minutes. He's young. He's only getting better. He's nearing his prime. King's MMA. They've got him They've got him well-suited. And one of his chief tra- training partners is Kelvin Gastelum, another man that has fought Izzy. I just feel like he's surrounding himself in a good spot. Though when they're going to tell you Israel Adesanya is this big of a favorite, a lot of it is, I think, the, still the name. The name. Not necessarily that last performance, whereas Jan not only outstruck him, but was relatively able to take him down with ease, I thought. So... Uh, I think I'm going to go with Marvin Vittori. Does a lot of that have to do with value, potentially? But I also think just think he, his, the way that his style matches up with Izzy, I just think he's confident in himself and it's right place, right time. So so live underdog there. If they're close rounds and the judges are going to give it to the champ and they're going to be siding it with, with Israel Adesanya, then maybe I lose a decision in the end. But if it's going to be a close decision, this is still worth that dog play because of the, the considerable plus money. On Marvin, last point there, you talked about the over under being four and a half. Yeah, I think it goes the distance. Like, I think if Marvin has his way, he'll complete some takedowns, he'll back Izzy up. He's not knocking out his Adesanya, and I don't think he's going to submit Adesanya, certainly. And flip Adesanya's not submitting Marvin Vittori. And whereas, you know, his best path probably is a knockout, I don't know. Like, who does he knock out? He knocked out Robert Whitaker. You all went the distance with him. Paulo 
Yeah, I guess, I, he, listen, he's so sharp. It's like McGregor. If the power is not there, the precision is going to put you over. Is he still the best striker in the middleweight division? He's still going to have a lot. He's still going to pick apart Marvin Vittori. It's up to Marvin to force the takedown. Other than that, I'm going to get beat up, but the fight's still going to go to 25, I think. And so even if Marvin does lose and it's an Israel Adesanya win, I still hedge myself out with that fight to go the distance ticket as well. You're all over the place. Yeah, maybe. You don't want to. Do, I guess about? you don't. I think I think if this was coming off of the Paulo Costa fight, I think that Israel Adesanya would be like minus 400 in this spot. You know, the, the first time that these guys fought, round one and two, very, very clearly Adesanya rounds. Round three, Marvin's able to get the takedown. I just find it hard to think that Marvin's going to be able to replicate what Jan did. The big thing going for Jan there. And I'm throwing that Jan versus Adesanya fight pretty much out the window. Because Jan had probably about, on fight night, probably about 30 pounds on Adesanya. Um, it was a really, really tall task. He's, he wasn't, you know, it was one of those things that he was moving up to light heavyweight, but he wasn't a light heavyweight. We've always talked about going up to 205 pounds is the hardest hardest move in all of MMA. I, I don't really think that Marvin is going to be able to hold down Adesanya uh, for three, three out of five rounds in this spot. Um, I actually think that, yeah, I think Adesanya would be minus 400 if this was, you know, if the yawn fight didn't happen whatsoever, he'd be minus 400 in this spot. And I think Adesanya probably clips him catches a knockout at some point the the level of striking between the two of them is just on a a totally different level um adesanya seems very very hungry to to bounce back in this spot here so i got adesanya the 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 knockout prop is like plus 175 it's not really enough for me to jump on board because i obviously could see this going uh all five rounds but uh but yeah i think adesanya is actually the value side in this spot still. So you got an Adesanya possible decision. I got a Marvin Vittori, and I'm also going to take the decision. So you don't want to do a shoey bet, do you? And you get a that big of a favorite over me? Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is the spot. We definitely should have bet last week on uh, your boy, Ilya Latifi. Not that I particularly why, why, Wait Bozer, a second. So you, would want me, you want me to be taken underdogs? In, in fights, but you're not going to take underdogs in fights. Well, realistically speaking, uh, you're taking a... Sorry, where's the exactly? You're getting a minus 255 favorite. Bozer mm-hmm. was a minus 175 favorite. So mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but to me, that is a considerable difference. But uh, listen, I'm not saying I love Marvin Vittori. I'm saying you, you're thinking it's going five rounds. I'm thinking it's going five rounds. I think Izzy could fight, knock him last, out. In the last, last fight was a split decision, and it was close. Quite easily. This is going to be close. He didn't pull away over Yawn. He didn't pull away over Yol. He didn't, you know what I mean? So I think, I think if it just ends Whittaker, up going the distance, we both Costa. then I want the plus 215. And another point, you mentioned Israel Adesanya beat him up for the first two rounds that last time around. Well, the last time they fought, Israel Adesanya is 28 years old and Marvin Vittori is 24 years old. Okay. Doesn't sound like a big difference, but it is a big difference. Marvin's done a, a lot better. He, he improves a lot fight to fight. And that's why you have cash tickets on him in his last two fights. Because no one believed in him in the Hermanson fight. He's a slight favorite. He goes out there and shows he can fight five rounds. Show he's durable. Shows that he's improving. And then comes out with, I guess, I guess the Coven Holland fight, the blueprint was already written. I, I get it. But everyone was saying going yeah. into that fight, well, Cody. Hermanson landed Brunson 122 significant strikes. How do you think that's going to go? Say it again? I said Vittori... 
or sorry, uh, Hermanson landed 122 significant strikes on Marvin Vittori. Like, yeah, Adesanya's well, I'll, gonna I'll, I'll land. Counter, I'll counter. Land I'll counter at with will this. on him if that's the no, case. Like, no, no, their striking isn't. He landed the... 78 over Jan Blakovitz. Okay, he landed 48 in 25 minutes over Yoel Romero. Uh, the Kelvin Gastelum fight was a legendary war. It I took think... everything he had. He knocks him down multiple times, and he scores 109. Okay, so his volume is not the 122. I know what you're saying. Maybe he tees off. No, I'm on saying Hermanson. Hermanson landed that on Vittori. Is what I, I am saying. I'm, and what I'm countering with what is what I'm saying is, is Vittori is going to try to charge forward, like you were saying, and he's just going to get picked off by the much better striker. And I don't think his, fair, I don't, I just enough. don't think you he's going to be able to wrestle to at that one, level. You have a two and a half to one favorite. Yeah. He should win. I'm hoping my guy makes it greasy for you. All right. We got uh, Davison Figueredo taking on Brandon Moreno. Davison Figueredo is minus 220. Moreno can be had for plus 180. Obviously, a rematch. Between these two guys, and it was the last time that they fought, um, and it was a hell of a it was a hell of a fight, hell of a banger. I feel like this this fight, I like Figueroa. I think he landed the the much more clean, powerful strikes in that matchup. But one, the guy struggled with his weight uh, multiple times. Even when he's made weight, he's looked a little bit you know a little bit sick on the scales. And two, this is kind of a tough matchup for him because Brandon Moreno's got like zombie level durability and great cardio. Um, obviously, the fight last time came down, you know, to the to the fence grab point taken away. But I gotta before I lay any sort of wood on on Davis and Figueredo in this spot, I gotta make sure that that the that the man is fine on the scales on Friday afternoon. Figueredo is the pick. I think he landed the better strikes. He obviously would have won that fight if he didn't uh, lose a point for um, for holding the cage. But this guy notoriously loses points for fouls literally all the time. So that's kind of got to be factored in. If you don't think that he's going to finish Moreno, it's very possible he loses a point for some sort of foul, whether it's an eye poke or a low blow. Or, you know, the guy's got a history of, you know, getting penalized in his fights so we got to see the weigh-ins first and two it, it seems like some action is coming in on Moreno right now I'm happy to wait and sit back and wait for this one I think Davison Figueroa is the better talent but Moreno's just kind of that type of matchup his durability just causes certain problems in uh it's like a chink in the armor of Figueroa so Figueroa's the pick but no bet for me what about you I think it comes down to if you're gonna make a bet, at least on my per, me personally, is I'm leaning towards Moreno here because it's again it's the value side. We, you've seen these guys fight the last time; it's a razor close fight. <laughs> Correct, Figueredo would have won the fight right without the point deduction. Wasn't actually for a cage grab, by the way, it was for a low blow. Um, but the guy's a fucking cheater, dude. Not only does he grab the cage, right? Not only does he poke him in the eye, but then he he smokes him in the in the groin, and that's what loses him the point. You see him do it in a bunch of his fights. He's kind of a greasy guy, but he relies on his power and not flyweight. If he hits you, he's going to topple you over. The last time we were going into this fight, everyone's on Figueredo. Sure. My biggest point from the first fight was knocking out Brandon Moreno would be one hell of a task. It's submitting Brandon Moreno is one hell of a task because we all know Figueredo's got that guillotine choke as well. But I thought at the very least, Brandon Moreno would make it to 25 minutes. Brandon Moreno ended up getting teed off on. But you know something, Paul? He took all of his best shots. Every time Figueredo would land, good combination would sting him. He came back every time. 
So now over the course of five rounds, it seemed to me like Moreno was starting to get to him, was starting to wear him down and was starting to, you know, work his way back into the fight and do much better. So you would probably argue, see, the judges got it two nothing Figueredo after two. Um, one judge has a one, one, the commentators seem to be split on the idea of that. It's one, one, but it's all how you score those early rounds in the third round. He absolutely wins the third round, but loses the point. So you've got an even round there, but rounds four and five. I think that's when Moreno takes over the fourth rounds is best best round. He hurts Figueredo with, with a, with a nice kick, you know, all night, the jabs landing well, the right hands landing well, the cardio ends up being advantage for Brandon Moreno. And again, I go back to the fact that Figueredo is a 32 year old man who's already fought in the best guys in the division, who's already been at the top and is the current champion. And Brandon Moreno is a 27-year-old kid who's coming off a fight with Brandon Royval and is now fighting Figueredo. So to me, that wasn't the best version of Brandon Moreno that we're going to see yet. Whereas Figueredo is Figueredo. Dude, he touches you, you topple over. We get it. If you extend him some later rounds, he doesn't look that good. So the key here for Moreno is to not go down 3-0 heading into the fourth round. Mm. He's just got to split it. He's just got to win one of those first three rounds, take over in the fourth and fifth, win fourth and fifth. Another thing is his wrestling was surprisingly really good in the first fight, right? He takes down um, Figueredo a couple times in those early rounds, but is not able to hold him down. The more he gets him tired, the more he's able to establish some top control and have a little bit more success. His ground and pounds on point and everything's working good. Moreno's known for a good, great chin and great cardio. And those are two weapons that I think would be very effective against Figueredo because his best weapons knock you out, take that off the table with the good chin. And, you know, maybe he has a bit of a durability issue. We need to pull him, in, him into some deep waters. So in a rematch now, if I'm Brandon Moreno, you've seen his best shots. You've taken his best shots. You know his setups. Whereas for Figueredo, like, dude, he zombied him. He just, hands were low and he just walked forward the whole time. But that's how he fights. How does he get away from that? So listen, the way that that first fight went, point deduction off the table, still a close fight. Um, would you would you make an opener 275 Figueredo? That's a crazy opener. So yeah, no, I completely agree with money coming in on Moreno because again, you're probably betting the fact that this is going five rounds. It's going to be close and competitive fight and we just need our guy to edge a couple of those rounds. So last but not least, because this is the point that you made, is I'm not fully convinced on the Figueredo weight cut either. Dude is a big 25er, man. And we've seen him struggle and we've seen him come over a little bit overweight and we've seen him fade in those later rounds. And now that he's 32, a world champion, making pay-per-view bonus money, headlining and co-headlining big pay-per-views for the UFC, he's he's getting winning bonuses, you know, he's getting paid, he's making money. He's naturally getting bigger. He's naturally enjoying his life a little bit more. I, I think these weight cuts, they don't get any easier as time goes by. You wreck so much havoc on your body every time you do it. The more times you do it, it's not easy. When they had originally abolished the flyweight division, he was one of the few guys people were like, move him to Bantamweight, you know? Figueredo could fight at Bantamweight. He wouldn't look at a place, and he wouldn't. But the longer he fights at, at flyweight, the cut's going to catch up to him. If it catches up to him here, we'll know hopefully on Friday when, the, when he steps on the scale. Moreno's live to take over in four and five. He just needs to win one of those first three rounds. And that's what I'm kind of hoping on here. So again, I'm going to go with the underdog here in, uh, in Brandon Moreno. And at the very least, I just need one of my underdogs to hit in the co-main or main event to make that, you know, profitable. Sure. But I just think these are a lot closer fights than the lines are indicating, probably because of the name and the reputation associated with the favorites. You know, you got Izzy, he's the man you've, you've got Davidson Figueredo. He's the man. Like, is there going to be two and news? Like, what are the chances of that? But, Again, I think at the very least there's one of them. I think both guys got merit. Fair enough. All right, we got uh, Leon Edwards taking on Nate Diaz. Leon Edwards, 
is a minus 600 favorite. Nate Diaz plus 400. I have to imagine sports books are taking a, just a, a shitload of casual Nate Diaz money this week. And that line keeps becoming bigger and bigger uh, of a favorite for Leon Edwards. And I don't disagree with the line movement. I think the books are slaying that trap for all the casual money right now. And uh, I actually, I'd par- I tried to get it. I tried to get in on the, uh, you know, the Mayweather Paul shit show. So I had add, added Mayweather, Adesanya, and Leon Edwards. Edwards was like five, minus five hundred at that point in time. Uh, must I must mention right here too that we've got a it's a five round like featured uh, featured event here. So it's a five round fight despite being the you know no title being on the line here. But we've already seen Leon Edwards fight five rounds. Looks fine. Um, the striking, the grappling, everything's kind of on point here. I think the line is obviously pretty, pretty wide here. Nate Diaz just has never really impressed me at 170 pounds. He's skinny, doesn't really have the musculature necessary. Um, I think Edwards' rolls here uh, makes it look quite easy. But Nate Diaz is super, super durable. So, like, the over-under... Uh, plus 110 to the over, and the under is minus 140. I guess I would probably lean towards the over here. I just think unless Nate Diaz, you know, he's had problems with some cuts around his eyes from, like, some buildup of scar tissue and stuff like that. Apparently, he's had some surgery to re- uh, to repair that. But um, I, I, he's so durable. It, it, I find it hard to believe that Leon's going to, gonna knock him out so Leon likely by decision is is where my head's at here I'm already on him just on the money line though uh what's your take here yeah it's funny because I agree uh I would love to take we got Leon Edwards okay Leon Edwards is our guy Leon Edwards is gonna win this fight Leon Edwards is the anchor of the parlays this week and at six to one you know one would assume that that that, that's gonna be the case the real key here is Leon Edwards wins this fight by decision correct one would assume so. The Bilal Muhammad fight likely would have headed towards the decision, but Rafael DeSanio's decision, Gunnar Nelson's decision, Donald Cerrone's decision, Peter Sabata, 459 of round three, Paul. One second one. And that's the only knockout he's got because then you go back to Brian Barbarina, Vincente Luque. Again, all decisions. He just, He's a decision guy. He not, not submitting Nate Diaz off the table, right? That world doesn't exist. So now knocking out Nate Diaz, <laughs> again, what world, right? This is a guy that took all of McGregor's best shots multiple times clean on the chin uh his fight with his last time against george monsvidal yeah he gets stopped but again cut stoppage and uh you look at the only time he's ever been knocked out it's josh thompson 10 years ago head kick like and he's not out man he's discombobulated the ref stops it but he's still there you know what i mean this is the jungle he would have fought on it's just thankfully we've got someone who's out to look out for your safety and your security and he lives to fight another day but yeah, again, Edwards not a finisher. Nate Diaz not one to get finished. It seems like fights go in the distance. You take fight goes the distance, you can get slight plus money. But if we got Leon Edwards anyways, why not take Leon Edwards by decision? Plus 135 seems generous. The one thing is the cut. Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to is the cut. Because at any point, he's going to bust up. The thing is he bleeds a lot. It just doesn't look, it's not aesthetically pleasing to the judges. Whether he's going to lose the rounds, sure. But at some point when you're down... If it's a competitive fight, you're 2-2 going into the fifth and your face is completely mangled, they, they actually don't stop the fight. Mm-hmm. And most For the most part, they'll let you fight on. When you're down three, four rounds going into the fifth and your face is mangled, they stop the fight. Because at this point, 
you're not coming back. You're not in it. You're not going to win on this cards. Like that, that's, that's the way, that's the sad reality of it. So by the time that Leon Edwards busts Nate up, it's probably going to be into like into round three. I'd be interested in taking an over three and a half, but it's not got greater of a price tag, but it's like Leon's got really nice elbows in the clinch and he's been using them effectively a lot lately where he'll clinch up with the guy. You know what he does? Excellent. Probably better than anything. Is he, the, is he one of the better wrestlers in the division? No. Is he one of the better strikers in the division? A- actually not. Is he, is he got, is he just a cardio freak? Got good cardio. I don't know if I would consider him a cardio freak, but he's got really high ring IQ and he strikes every time he exits the clinch, like probably better than almost anybody like chops you out. You know, he's tight, he's compact. He's smart with his, his strike selection. And a guy like that should just systematically pick apart Nate Diaz. Who's a little bit more wild. Who's a little, a little bit more open. Who will taunt him. He'll put his hands in the air. He'll bleed all over the place but he's going to drop rounds. And so what, how, if you looked at 10,000 or a thousand fights happened in the UFC, how many of them are stopped on a cut? Like it's a low percentage, right? So are we, are, if we're going to bet this inside the distance or fight goes the distance, are we really betting on cut stoppage? We're acknowledging it's a possibility, you know, it could definitely, it could happen, but I would have to say Leon probably just wins this on the points and that at plus plus one thirty-five, not a bad price tag. So him straight up is going to be an anchor of the parlays, but him by decision is a, is a good plus money play. I think. Yeah, if this was a three-round fight, that decision prop is like a no-doubter. Like, no-doubter, especially at that price. But obviously, it's probably, like, you'd pro- it'd probably be like minus 150 Leon by decision if it was a if it was a three-round fight, in fairness. I don't think they'd be yeah. giving you the, the plus 135. All right, I think we've said all we have to do about that one. We got Bilal Muhammad taking on Damian Maya. Bilal Muhammad, minus 230 favorite. Damian Maya can be had for plus 195, which you take here. Yeah. So again, this comes down to the takedown. And this is probably one of the most interesting things that I noticed about Bilal Muhammad is that certainly somebody on the matchmaking team is, is, is loves giving him favorable matchups because this is his run. Okay. When was the last time he fought a wrestler? He fought Leon Edwards, non-wrestler, Diego Lima, Muay Thai striker, Lyman Good, kind of a generalist, but big power in his hands. Takashi Sato is a Japanese brawler. Curtis Millinder is the worst wrestler you've ever seen in your entire life. Jeff Neal's a banger. Chance Rancounter is more of a jiu-jitsu guy. Tim Means, the Dirty Bird, is a, is a long, lanky, precise striker. Jordan Mean out of Canada is a long, lanky, little bit less precise striker. Randy Brown's a long, gangly, more of a boxer. Vincente Luque, sharp, Muay Thai stylist. Augusto Montano is a brawler from Mexico. Alan Joban, the pretty boy model, is a, is a straight-up striker. He's never fought a wrestler in his five-year UFC tenure Fought for the company, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 UFC fights. Not once has he ever fought a guy whose primary base was to wrestle. So the assumption is that Bilal Muhammad can wrestle because he uses his offensive wrestling in all of his fights. But as far as getting a beat on his defensive wrestling, difficult. So you look at the two fights that he has been taken down in, and uh, the Jordan Mean fight, I guess that's the first time in the UFC he's been taken down. He absolutely mauls Jordan Mean, takes him down multiple times. And with like 10 seconds left in the third round, Mean gets a sloppy takedown on it. It's not even a real takedown as far as I'm concerned, to be honest with you. But you go back to that Takashi Sato fight, happens about a minute left in the second round. Takashi Sato links up with him, like slips under, it's a duck under, throws him to the ground, lands in like side control. And once he's got Bilal Muhammad on his back, first and only time you really see Bilal Muhammad on his back from off the takedown, 
there's there's no get up. He spends 45 it's the last 45 seconds of the round, but he just spends it with Sato on top of him and then goes into the third round and beats him. So Damian Maya is 43 years old, man. And his best days are certainly behind him. Um, he's turning 44 later this year. But really, dude, it just comes down to the takedown. If he, he gets always... the takedown, he's going to style on Bilal Muhammad on the ground. And Bilal Muhammad's takedown defense, I'm sure, is adequate. It's okay. But Damian's got a long history of taking much better wrestlers down at least once. So if that's a possibility, like that's what kind of makes it murky, in my opinion, right? Um, what are your thoughts on it? Like, I got a few more, but I'm rambling, I'm sure. So go ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm kind I'm kind of with you. I think it's a dog or pass situation regardless. They're a little bit slow to the draw maybe because they're scared on uh on Maya by sub props here. Yeah, there, there's no yeah, the fact of the matter is he's super he's old, he's dusty. It doesn't look pretty on the feet. He's pretty slow. Um if he's not able to get the takedown, he's 100% losing this fight. But he's been pretty durable for the most part and Bilal Muhammad isn't some sort of potent uh power puncher. Uh, for the most part. But yeah, you go through like former, you know, fights of his. He took down uh, Gilbert Burns twice early on in that <laughs> fight. Uh, he ended up getting yeah. knocked out, obviously, and that's not a great look, but uh, Gilbert Burns went and fought for the title um, and looked pretty damn good in round one against uh, Kamaru Usman before getting flatlined in round two. But, you know, first round finish against Gilbert Burns, a top level contender in the division that's you know let's you know it's it's a little bit over his head at this point in his career took down uh, Anthony Rocco Martin three times uh take down Lyman Good two times like the guy gets it took down George Masvidal uh back in 2017 four times that's, like, what, that's what won him the fight yeah I think I'm interested I'll, I'll probably end up sprinkling now that we've been talking about it. I'm interested in Maya by sub. I think if he does get it down there, um who can close the show better than this guy? Maybe maybe Gilbert Burns. Gilbert Burns is one of the guys that maybe can close the show a little bit better, a little bit cleaner, a little bit faster than Damian Maya. But he's been doing it forever and the guy just has I think on this card he's like he laps the field and he's got like 67 career takedowns. Uh, to his name obviously he's got a lot more fights than pretty much every well than everybody legitimately on this card but the old guy's still got that in his back pocket he's able to get to the to the ground and when he gets it to the ground it's I think it's gonna be a tough spot for Bilal Muhammad so I think it's a dogger pass situation um, like you do it seems and uh, probably have a little sprinkle on Maya by sub Uh, it's only open at one place right now and it's like plus 400. Um, I'm hoping maybe, because he's a plus 195 underdog, right? Like, I'm hoping somebody uh, gives a little bit of a better price there. Yeah, some of these books are a little slow to the draw on on, on making that sub prop. Probably because they're scared. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm more or less with you on this one. I, I'm not too interested in laying the wood on Bilal Muhammad minus 230. Despite the fact that I, I know if he's able to stop the takedowns, he wins this fight on the feet with volume and just kind of breaks down for sure. Uh, yeah. Maya so over not, time. That's not even debatable. The no, win exactly. is standing. All right, we got Jamal Hill taking on Paul the Bear Jew Craig. Uh, Jamal Hill minus two eighty five. Craig can be have a plus two forty five over under in this fight. Only one on the card that it that at least is listed. There's one I like at the end of the show. Hopefully there'll be some odds on it by the time we get there. I've been constantly updating hoping for uh for vola mckinney totals but we'll that's that that's what they call a tease in the biz uh minus 130 to the over 
plus 100 to the under. Um, Jamal Hill by knockout seems to be the most uh, likely path here. I've been kind of against him, wasn't all that impressed by him, but he's, he's, he's proven me wrong. The guy seems to be uh, a surging contender in this division right now. Uh, obviously, the over-under, this is the only one on the card that is set to a one and a half. He probably wins by knockout, but I, I, I went and I looked at the odds. It's minus 150. That's a 60% of the time type of outcome. Uh, the, the book's pretty wise to that here. Uh, Jamal Hill is the pick. I don't love the price. Maybe this is the time where finally, you know, someone gets him to the ground. The Bear Jew is able to uh, snatch up a, a submission in this spot. But I think Hill probably gets this done in, uh, within about 10 minutes, probably in the first couple of rounds. What about you? Yeah, honestly, I agree 100%. I think that Hill's another one of the big favorites this week that I, I do have a lot of confidence in. Factor in that, again, still only 20, or he's, he's 30 years old. It's the experience, right? It's the fact that he only turns pro in 2017, like three and a half years as a pro. Dude fights his first four or five fights on the Michigan regional scene outside of a win over Daquan Townsend, just fought guys with losing records, hasn't fought anybody. And from that, he's on the contender series. Beats Alexander Popek, good showing. He's big, man. He's six foot four, 79 inch reach, southpaw, and good hands. At this weight class, I mean, he's, there's, a lot of these guys are a little bit lumbering. A lot of these guys are hittable. He's going to be a factor. It really does come down to the takedown defense. So he beats Popic. He signs with the UFC. And Darko Stosic just tosses him around effortlessly. Six takedowns completed. What I liked about him, him in that spot was his get up game. He would get up. Every time he got taken down, he'd get back up. And he would just put it on Alexander Pope, or he would put it on. Uh, Darko Stosic. Think about this. How many guys give up six takedowns throughout the course of a fight and still manage to put up 101 significant strikes landed and win the fight? So what I like is when he is standing, he's busy, he's in your face, cardio checks out. Again, southpaw is always tricky, but with a 79-inch reach to boot, it's all good stuff. Darko Stosic is actually fighting as a heavyweight currently in Poland and doing pretty good for himself. The fight over Clips in Abreu, it's a no contest due to, I think, a marijuana uh, test. Come on, what a joke. But, I mean, he absolutely blew through Klitsin Abreu, who at least had not made a fool of himself in any of his prior fights, you know, was a was a slightly lower to mid-level guy. But still, he absolutely just blows through him, drops him twice. And now, just like that, the UFC is setting him up with a fight with OSP. I think that really does show the faith in him because he's 30 years old, so you need to fast-track a guy like that. He's got a refined skill set. And like a Mano Fioro, she doesn't have a whole lot of fights, but what you see is like, uh, again, uh, like more or less a complete version of a fighter and uh, a talented fighter at that. I think that Jamal Hill has got great striking. I wouldn't say great striking, but certainly really good for this weight class. He's long, he's rangy, he's tough to get a beat on, and he's got some legitimate power. He chopped up OSP from start to finish. OSP should have probably pursued the takedowns a little bit more. It would have given us a better read on how his takedown defense is improving, and also that would have been the path of victory for OSP, but he did. He stood in front of him, and as a result, he gets chopped up and he gets knocked out. Paul Craig, at least if you're a Paul Craig better, you're not worried about Paul Craig standing in front of him and fighting similar game plan. He's going to pursue the takedowns. What this fight comes down to is if he's able to be successful with the takedowns. It's to a lesser extent the Damian Maya fight, right? But uh, Damian Maya has gone the distance with Kamaru Usman. He went the distance with George Masvidal. He went the distance with Colby Covington. He went the distance with you know the, the best guys in the sport. I understand Burns knocked him out. That was the first knockout loss in 11 years, and he's fought all of the best guys. Uh, he's got a durable chin. 
Paul Craig, on the other hand, is not really necessarily known for his ability to take a punch. So if he gets snuffed out on the takedown attempts in this first round, he's toppling over. I got Hill. I got Hill by knockout. I also like the under one and a half for this spot because either Hill knocks him out in that first one and a half, or if Paul Craig was to get this fight to the ground, you know, that would be his his little miracle, like the quick little triangle choke or like to snatch up a quick little submission. We haven't really seen Hill's submission defense get tested, so to speak. So maybe Paul Craig could take advantage of that. But Paul Craig's not really known as a cardio machine, right? So I don't think Paul Craig's going to catch him with something late, although we've seen it in the Ankalaya fight. If anything, he catches him early or he gets caught early. Um, With Paul Craig, it's easy to get behind him in that he's on this four-fight winning streak. He fought Shogun. Shogun. Mm-hmm. the hell man why are you even doing that to shogun twice gazmurat antigulov and vinicius morera that's the base of his, his four fight winning streak right three the over the hill brazilians two, the sorry one, shogun twice <laughs> vinicius morera and gazmurat antigulov when he fought alenzo menafield he got the, the takedown got stuffed he got hit he toppled over um the khalil roundtree fight got hit he toppled over tyson pedro got hit toppled over Three first-round knockout losses. But when you give him old-aged Shogun or Gazmora and Antigulov, who, by the way, took him down was then gave up the triangle joke, uh, Vinicius Moreira, does he beat those guys, Paul? Yeah, absolutely he beats those guys. But Jamal Hill, when he snuffs out the takedown, it's going to go back to the way it was before, and that's he's going to touch your lips. When he touches your lips with that left hand, you're toppling over. So, uh, yeah, I got Hill. To be safe with it, you're just going to parlay Hill probably with... Um, with Leon Edwards, you know, like that's probably the basis of the top ticket parlay. But beyond that, if you want to, you want to get a little bold with it. Yeah. I, I think he'll finish this inside the distance specifically by knockout. And I'm tempted to look at that one and a half under one and a half. Uh, I feel like that. I feel like that knockout prop is a little, is a little juicy though, to be honest. Like the only place that's posting it right now, minus 165. Actually like bet online has, it's funny. They've got, Hill inside the distance at minus 150, but they've got Hill by knockout minus 165. So it's like, don't take the minus points. 165. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll adjust over the week and there'll be more things. I, I think maybe the under, the under at, uh, at, you know, plus 100, I'm more drawn to. Obviously, the, it could go over, but I feel like even if Craig has a good first round, like you still got two and a half minutes for Hall, uh, for Hill to get the job done. And uh, put this guy away. Um, and otherwise, yeah, if Craig's able to get to the ground, he's got good jujitsu. But yeah, the longer this fight stays on the feet, it's going to be bad times for Paul Craig. All right, we got uh, Drew Dober taking on Brad Riddell. Drew Dober, minus 135 favorite. Riddell, plus 115. Riddell dodged a goddamn bullet. Not having to fight Gregor Gillespie, I'll tell you that much. Um, this is an interest. Yeah. Very interesting fight because, you know, it's going to end up, you have like an American kickboxer versus, you know, the, the striking coach at, uh, at City Kickboxing. And it, it, the fight stays on the feet. I think, you know, the line seems more or less fair. It's, it's close to a pick em type of situation. If, if Riddell had any sort of semblance of a wrestling game that we were aware of, that's typically the best way to beat Drew Dober. Um, I don't really have a hard lean on this one. Um, gun to my head, uh, I guess I'll pick Dober, but uh, no money uh, to be had here. I think it's more or less a pick'em fight, and it's priced as a pick'em. What's your take here? 
I got myself leaning towards Brad Riddell. When the fight first got announced, I actually had Drew Dober. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of what Dober's been able to do recently. And being out of training with Justin Gaethje on a day-to-day basis, you're only going to make improvements. You're only going to get better. But a lot of those guys that are at Elevation Fight Team, you know, they've got they've got limitless cardio, which is a weapon in any fight, but they're getting tight. They're getting technical. They've got all the skills. Some of the best wrestlers in the country are out there. The, the Olympic Training Center is in Colorado for a very specific reason. And uh, again, I think they're just churning out great guys. Drew Dober had a bit of a slow start in his UFC career. He was a, you know, mid-level guy for a long time. And then all of a sudden he had his big, big breakout. He's on a three-fight winning streak and gets booked against Benil Darius. He's expected to lose. And he puts an absolute thrashing on Benil Darius before he gets caught and does lose. But that was like, oh shit, you know, if you stay standing with this guy, you're going to have some serious problem. Polo Reyes, yeah, that's what happened. You stood standing with him. He knocks him out. Nazrat Hackcross, my boy. Stood, stood in front of him, dude. Bad news. You know, Alexander Hernandez couldn't take him down, couldn't hold him down. And when he was forced to stand in front of him, he, he got he got destroyed. Islam Makachev didn't have to stand in front of him. Takes him down. So we've got a very solid guy in Drew Dober who's got the power advantage over, a, 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 I would think, the slightly slicker guy in Brad Riddell who's giving up the power. And again, fight gets uh, announced and, and I'm thinking Drew Dober. But the, the more that I've looked at it, the more that I've thought about it, like I think I got a slight lean towards Brad Riddell and it's just the combination punching. Drew Dober seems to just have, he has more power. So he relies a little bit more on that big power. Whereas Brad Riddell, is, he's slicker, you know? I think he's going to have the volume. His fights indicate that he probably does throw out a slightly higher clip than, than him. But this is the biggest difference for me, right? Is that Brad Riddell has fought his first three fights in the UFC. He takes on Jamie Malarkey, who tried to wrestle him, right? Why wouldn't he? And that's kind of how Malarkey fights. Malarkey, not a bad fighter, by the way. But he's not able to open up the way he'd like to. You see glimpses of it. You see glimpses of excellence. But he's worried about the counter. He's got to, he's got to counter wrestle in there, right? Then he gets Magomed Mustafa. <laughs> how do you think this is going to go down, you know? you got to use your takedown defense. And he does. He does. He gets taken down a number of times. His get-up game's good in that fight. And he doesn't really get to open up with his hands because of that threat of the takedown, but he still does enough to get a competitive split decision victory out of it. Now he gets Alex De Silva. So whereas you've got Dober is knocking out legitimate guys like Hackbross, fighting guys like Alex Hernandez and Benil Darius, that all looks good. Brad, Brad Bell's not even operating at the same level. But what I'm getting at is the Alex De Silva fights the same thing. All these guys are routinely trying to take him down. Drew Dober has not taken an opponent down in three years. He has a 17% takedown accuracy overall throughout his tenure in the UFC. And he, he, he's a striker. He likes to strike. So we got a striker's delight. This is a features prelim because once you watch this, you're going to be like, oh, I've got to buy the pay-per-view. The adrenaline will be coursing through your veins. It could be fight of the night. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great showing. But I honestly think that the longer this thing stretches out, Brad Riddell slightly, slightly, ever so slightly on the judge's scorecards comes out ahead. So... You could take a pass. It's going to be real competitive. The line looks very competitive as well, but you're getting underdog money on Brad Riddell. And this is just, to me, it's another one of these close fights that's likely going 15 minutes. And I'm going to take that dog money on it. So uh, I'm going to go plus 120 Brad Riddell. We got Eric Anders taking on Darren Stewart. Eric Anders, a minus 150 favorite. Stewart, a plus 130. Obviously, this fight was rebooked after uh, uh, legal foul by... Uh, it was an illegal knee. Sorry, my bad. Um, between uh, by Eric Anders, who was absolutely whooping, whooping. So I think the minus one fifty. I I haven't bet it yet, but I was like, shit, we saw what this fight looks like, and 
Maybe maybe the the whole you know the the whole landscape of the fight changes if he doesn't get an early knockdown and all of that. But like he was putting the hurt on Darren Stewart, and you know Darren Stewart maybe he's got like a wrestling advantage here. But you're taking on a former collegiate football standout for University of Alabama. Like I think he's very very strong. Not too many people have been able to just take down Eric Anders at will. He's been a guy who we haven't exactly been in love with, but. They're just, it's almost like they're begging us to bet Eric Anders here. What, what's your take here? Because, like, if that, if the fight plays out the same, it's just like, and he doesn't land an illegal knee, it's like he was very, very well on his way to securing a finish in that fight. Like, it was not going well for Darren Stewart. So I'm surprised that it's only minus 150 when they run this thing back. Uh, Eric Anders is going to cost me lots of money this weekend because I agree, dude. This it's a trap lot. They're they're totally baiting you into it. It's minus one fifty. We saw it three months ago, and Eric Anders absolutely kicked the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. So, but what I don't understand is why Anders threw the knee. I mean, clearly it's pretty obvious that Darren Stewart's grounded, and also you're very easily cruising on him at this point. It also didn't look like he was fatiguing. It wasn't like a Greg Hardy I want out kind of disqualification. It was just like, it was just a bonehead decision. And it's literally a few weeks after the, um, Peter Yan versus Aljamain Sterling. So it was the hot news topic of the of the week, man, of the month. Like, how did you allow this to happen? But regardless, he looked like a much better version of himself. And honestly, it was the tale of two fighters. I think that's what maybe why the line's minus 150. They're expecting Darren Stewart to be a little bit better and Eric Anders to be a little bit worse. But that was, to me, the best that Eric Anders has looked in the UFC in a very long time, certainly. And that was probably the worst that Darren Stewart looked. So keep that in mind, right? In Anders's case, he's got so much potential and that he's a great athlete. You mentioned University of Alabama. He's a former national champion. Um, Nick Saban had him as one of the team captains. It's like the guy's legitimate. As far as his MMA career goes, great athlete. Just it hasn't translated. You know, he's a former LFA champ. He had that big fight in Brazil against Leoto Machida, which... You know, a lot of people thought he won, but beyond that, it's like he just never realized his own potential, and it was kind of sad. So at this point, he's written off. It's his last hurrah. He loses to Christoph Jocko. He's competitive in a lot of these fights. Don't get me wrong. Beats Mearshart, loses to Jocko. It's kind of at the end of the road. He's 34 years old. Again, he's never captured the type of, uh, you know, success that he had in his college football days. And then one thing changes, Paul. He leaves the confines of his small gym where he's been the top dog, where he's made effectively zero improvements throughout his tenure in the UFC and goes to fight ready MMA and fight ready MMA is just loaded. Maybe not with guys, his size, but think about Henry Cejudo and how this guy's just always in tip top shape, always ready to go. Think about the Pitbull brothers, Patricio Pitbull, dual weight world-class champion and uh, in, in Bellator, just like, you know, one of the best guys in the pound for pound, best guys in the planet, in my opinion, you know, you look at just, a plethora Leandro Higo pulls off that huge win over Darian Caldwell as an upset victory. You look at Kamwella Kirk, who you and I had over Amir Khani over last weekend, you know, as a two to one underdog, all of these guys that have fight ready MMA, man, I tell you, they are sharp. They are sharp. They're coming in excellent shape. They got excellent game plans and his one camp. And we only saw him for what? Four minutes and 37 seconds. That one camp of fight ready produced in my opinion, the best looking Eric Anders in quite some time got himself a no contest through a knee, but looked a lot better. Darren Stewart flip side to that. Darren Stewart was on record being like he was in 
I don't want to say the Congo, but he was, he was away. He didn't have a fight camp. He basically spent the time. He mentioned that like, he was like fighting floods and uh, just like not an ideal training position to put yourself into coming into a prize fight. He also accepts it relatively short notice comes in and just gassed out after three minutes. So we do expect him to come out here in better shape next time around. But I thought if Anders does the exact same thing, if he stayed out fight ready, if he went right back in camp, he took zero damage. Darren Stewart took a lot of damage. Who do you think woke up on Monday morning feeling better and going back to the gym, right? If Anders just keeps this going, uh, certainly, certainly, this is going to be a repetition. Now, Anders has big power, but he's more of a decision guy. So I would lean towards Anderson, Anders by decision. But no, nah, man, if he connects, he's going to put you away. And what we just saw in his last fight, he's got the goods to put Darren Stewart away. If anything, we're going to see an even better version of Anders, who I get is 34, but at 205, like he's, he's still a lot faster than these guys. So, uh, yeah, I got to go with, uh, I got to go with your boy, which is physically his name. I know he's our boy this 10, weekend. But... I just laid, yeah, uh, yeah. I just laid it uh, cool bet minus 141. That was the best price I had available to me right now. I expect, I, I mean, I expect that to get up this week. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm just falling for the trap, but uh, I'm glad that you're on the same page as me because I kind of looked at that line and I was just like, we saw this and it did not look competitive. And yeah, I agree. It looked like Anders was kind of coming into his own. So we will see how that plays out. All right, next up, we got Joanne Jojo Calderwood taking on Lauren Murphy. Minus 150 Calderwood, plus 130 for Lauren Murphy. I mean, the stats the stats always look good for uh, for Joanne Calderwood, especially, obviously, in that last fight against Jessica. Uh, she's able to not get taken down, or it was a one-for-one one one in takedowns. When, when Calderwood took her down, it was more like she took her down and then backed up immediately, just like, no, no, I'm killing you on the feet. She landed 148 significant strikes in that fight. So if she's able to, like, stop the takedowns against Lauren Murphy, I see that's obviously her best path to victory, in this spot, but uh, I don't know. In that fight against uh, Jessica I, there's a lot of things that kind of bothered me. She hangs out in the clinch, and I know that, you know, that's where she unloads some of her patented elbows and, and all of that from her Muay Thai experience, but hanging out against the cage against Jessica I is one thing. Laura Murphy is so, so strong, though, um, and I just feel like in those positions, she could be leaving herself open to the takedown. Um, for me, haven't laid a bet yet. Wanted to talk to you first, but it's a dog or pass situation. Um, Lauren Murphy, hopefully finding takedowns and, uh, and and control this. I think she's a lot stronger. I know you're going to be like, oh, well, Lauren Murphy, she's 37 years old. But, like, I was actually kind of surprised. JoJo's not too young or JoJo man. is 38, with, or sorry, yeah. 34, 34. Which makes me feel really old because she's been around for so long. I remember her being on The Ultimate Fighter. I was just like, ah, she's got to be like 30. So she would have like seven years. Like, no, no, she's 34 now. Like, she's kind of at the tail end of her career as well. I think the best fights that we've seen from her were a little bit earlier in her, you know, in her 20s. And I feel like right now is probably the best Lauren Murphy that we've ever seen. So uh, Lauren Murphy plus 130 is where I would attack this. What's your head? Where, sorry, where is your head at here? Yeah, well, I'm going to make this my first pass of the night. I think I had a pass on this one on a personal standpoint because I, I agree. I, I'm going to take Joanne Calderwood, but I don't like the line. And whereas I've made some underdog bets on a couple of these other dogs on the on the card on the basis of, hey, man, this, this is going 15, mm-hmm. which I agree at that point here. And this is going to be a lot closer than the line suggests. So, like, why not have that filler 
decision on the other side, Lauren Murphy. She is as gritty as gritty comes. You know, we always talk about how, you know, this girl be the world champion of the world fighting at the truck stop, you know, beating up Bang Bang Betty Brown, going out there. Like, she is just tough, gritty as it gets. Grittier than John Wayne's boot. But, I mean, at some point, skill is going to take advantage. But, man, I mean, she, she makes it work for her extremely well. Like you mentioned, four-fight winning streak. And it's just on this basis of grinding. She's strong in the clinch. She's that strong. You know, she's got a good, dirty boxing. The takedowns is certainly there. But beyond that, I mean, she's got good cardio. She just keeps coming at you. Calderwood, it's like a mental lapse. Like she is, again, one of the most technically sound girls standing, former uh, European Muay Thai world champion, and has spent a lot of time working on her grappling. You don't really see the takedown defense make that big of improvements in the UFC, but the grappling itself has become a lot better. Mm -hmm. It's just like whenever she gets to that one big spot, she's expected to go out there and win and get a title shot. She always falls apart, right? The Cynthia Calvillo fight, the Caitlin Jukagian fight, and then most recently the Jennifer Maya fight where she gets submitted after... You know, playing that game, choosing to play that game and getting submitted by Jennifer Maya of all people. She was supposed to get a title shot. She did not need to fight Jennifer Maya, but she took the fight as a stay busy. She lost the fight. And as a result, Jennifer Maya gets the title shot and Joanne Calderwood doesn't. But she's got all the skills in the world. The way I kind of see this one playing is closer to Andrea Lee versus um, Lauren Murphy. And whereas that's a fight that Lauren Murphy wins, technically speaking. Most people universally, you know, did not agree with the decision and kind of thought that Andrew Lee had the better looks. Uh, Andrew Lee is a better striker and she has a, a ranger striker. And I think Calderwood does the same thing. She's longer, she's ranger. She's got a better jab, better right hand. As far as Laura Murphy clinching up with her, you got to deal with the elbows, got to deal with the knees. Calderwood's certainly going to be effective in that, in that range. It's just, I would rather see her at distance. That's where she'll have her most success. If Laura Murphy does mix in the takedowns, is Joanne Calderwood just going to accept position? I don't think so. I think that she'll work her way back up. And then when it is standing, you've got Lauren Murphy, who typically throws ones, one, two at a time, chopping overhand right. It's a lot more choppy with the striking. It's effective. It's effective because she chops at you and then bulldozes you into the cage and then takes you down, hopefully, and grinds away at you. But if Calderwood can just keep this fight standing and hopefully, you know, play her at bay, she should win the fight. But Mm. again, I think that it's a live under a live underdog opportunity for Lauren Murphy. I just, I don't want to pull the trigger on that one personally. So the official pick is going to be Joanne Calderwood, but from a betting perspective, I think I'm just looking to pass here. The only thing I'll add to that is Joanne Calderwood, short arms. Like yeah. Two and a half inch reach advantage for Lauren Murphy. Um, But Calderwood throws those cheap kicks up the middle. Like she's going to be able to use those to kind of maintain range and keep Lauren Murphy from like chasing her down like a honey badger um well, Lord that, Lord that, that's probably never... your best way like fighting off the jab probably is not going to be too effective i don't think for uh for calderwood in this spot yeah lord murphy's got 37 percent takedown accuracy and has uh never taken an opponent down more than twice no, she's I also know. never scored more than 100 significant strikes her 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 highest ever was 95 against kelly fashold five years ago her next highest in recent memory would be 80 against Andrea Lee, but Andrea Lee landed 104. This would be the same thing with Calderwood. You saw Calderwood do it a number of times. You know, once she gets going, she's throwing two, three, four, five punch combinations with a kick at the end of it. 148 against Jessica I, 101 against when she fought Andrea Lee, 112 against Ch- Caitlin Chukagian, who she should have won that fight. She'd get an excellent showing for herself. But those are three fights in recent memory where she's eclipsed the 100 mark. Like, even if Laura Murphy does mix in the takedown, she's got a 37% accuracy, not a great wrestler, no. and has never completed more than two takedowns in any of her UFC fights. So Calder was just got to get back up when she does get taken down and force her to work a little bit standing. But 
again, I, 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 I agree with the assessment that the line's a little bit wide, but I think I'm going to go with Calderwood, keep that as the final pick. I'm going to probably just join you on the pass, but it seems like a yeah. fight that uh, if Murphy gets takedowns What's early, fight maybe. What's fight goes the distance? Uh, shit, it's juice to the tits, man. I would actually I be more, is, I'd be yeah. more, I'd be more in, inclined to actually bet the, uh, Yes, the under five. at the odds that are just and and hope for like an yeah, um, yeah. armbar for from guard or something something silly. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's, I well, the over under was minus three fifty to the over two and a half rounds plus two seventy five to the under. So um, I don't have the other the fight goes the distance prop in front of me, but I'll get it because oh, it's asked. like minus three hundred five. Yeah, it's not it's not playable. Fight goes to yeah minus three hundred five plus two twenty five. I'd be more inclined to the under, but yeah, no, it's a it's a straight up pass. All right, next up we got uh, Movsar Evloev taking on Hakim Dawadu minus two thirty. Evloev plus one ninety five. Dawadu, who you got? Oh, I think he can make a strong under case for the underdog here again. And you know what? Canada really needs Hakim Dawadu to win this. We haven't had a fight win. We haven't had a fighter win in the UFC since John McDessie over two months ago. Our top heavyweight Tanner Bozer just flaked out last weekend. We've had almost no success. Our top woman, Felicia Spencer, totally blew one as well. Like the whole country is in disarray. Hakeem Dawadu is our guy. G- Gavin Tucker, who was our number two guy, he's now gone. Jeremy Kennedy was cutting it up in Bellator. He's he's no longer relevant at a top level. The, so dis- we need the disrespect that you've got for Alexis Davis, who's also on this card, could maybe get a it comes down Canada. to these two, right? It comes down <laughs> yeah. to these two. So certainly we need a good showing, and I'm not expecting a great showing out of Alexis Davis, although it's possible. Sure, but uh, Hakeem Duhado, baby, we need this. He's coming in as a big underdog, completely understand that. But again, it just to me it depends what kind of version of Hakeem Duhado shows up because him at his best is going to pose a lot of problems for Mavzar Evloev. If his cardio is not just enough, he has a bad weight cut. If all of a sudden later in the second or third round he starts giving up takedowns, then yeah, then I could see it being a problem. But he's he, the way he's built and his style is almost tailor-made to upset guys like Mavzar Evloev. He came uh, out of Canada, originally out of Alberta. It's just like, you know, one of our best con- uh, the country's best strikers, Muay Thai, you know, travel the world, fight Muay Thai, had a very strong Muay Thai pedigree. Um, you know, that, that, was, that was his whole deal, right? When he turned pro in MMA, it was like, hey, he's going to be one-dimensional with his kickboxing. Beat the best guys in Canada, beat Mike Malott, beat Tristan Johnson. Those guys are not forcing the takedown on him. But when you stand with him, you are in a lot of problems. It's when he signed to World Series of Fighting, right? He fought Ma- uh, Marat Magomedov twice. The first time with Magomedov, he does get taken down in the first two rounds. You know, gives a good account of himself, but he's down 2-0 going into the third. In the third round, he absolutely pillar to pose, beat the crap out of uh, Magomedov. Got a 10-8 round. That's why it was a draw. They run it back, and he absolutely butchers them the second time. Takedown defense, much improved from one fight to the other, and then he ends up knocking him out, or he hits a body shot in the second round, puts him away. Next fight against Steven Seiler. Seiler spams takedowns against him. He stuffs them all. But now that he's been in the UFC, you haven't really been able to see the takedown defense out of him. I just, in my own mind, keep going back to how much progression he was making back then and keep thinking to myself, how much progression could he have now made in the time since then, mm-hmm. because that's going to be the key here. Mavzar Evloev is going to try to take him down, but Mavzar Evloev is not one of these OV Russians. He's an no. EV Russian. Paul. I know. He Big doesn't difference. have that smothering takedown game that those guys got. He's not going to just chain wrestle you for the course of 15 minutes and establish this huge t- uh, top control on you. He does have excellent wrestling. That is a really good key to him, 
but he also tends to rely on his kickboxing a little bit as well. You see, he's kind of showing more flashes of his striking over his last couple of fights. The Mike Grundy fight, probably a great example, and his last fight against Nick Lentz. The striking is getting better, but to be honest, it's not on Dewadu's level. Dewadu's just got to stuff the takedown, keep this fight standing, and if he can force this to be a stand-up fight, I, uh, I think that he's just the, the more technically sound, heavier puncher, better puncher all around. The one thing that would worry me, I suppose, is volume, is if Mazar Evil, if he just keeps coming at him. But again, that's why I say Hakeem at his best. Because the Kyle Bokniak fight, 103 to 42, you know, th- that's huge, man. The fight with Hori, it went into the third round. He, he, 80 significant strikes landed. To who got a fight, he keeps the fight standing for the most part. And it's lower volume, but it, that's because of the threat of the takedown. So my worry here with Evloev is because of the threat of the takedown, he doesn't open up as much as he normally does. Evloev will beat him on volume. But again, I think it goes three rounds, and I think it's going to be closely contested. And so for that reason, Evloev's too big of a favorite. Mavzar Evloev has been my cash cow. I bet him every single time out. And mm-hmm. I do kind of feel like a little bit of a traitor betraying him because he's done nothing wrong to me. You know, the guy's been everything I could have wanted and more. And I'm not trying to let this Canadian bias slip in here, but I just, I, I like playing out the style clash. And the way this is, is Mavzar is winning these fights over guys because he's mixing in the wrestling against Dewadu if he's not able to get that going it becomes live underdog situation yeah like i've a, already got a ton of underdogs on the card as you've seen so yeah, this one's not above spamming being underdogs fight. this this yeah this i know and, and 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 i could see myself switching to a mobzar evlo of pick late in the week just keep running the tape and like maybe that's the one on twitter where it's going to be low on the ticket because i got no trust either way but uh i could see myself flipping on that but this is a card that's just ready to bark, man. There's a lot of underdogs. They're all two to one underdogs too. And I think that there's a lot of fights that are going to be going. The judges are going to have to be on point as well because there's, these fights are going to go the distance and they're going to be competitive. It just depends who two of the three guys are. Yeah, that that all seems to make sense to me. And honestly, yeah, Hakeem's, Hakeem's volume, you know, from a statistical pit, uh, standpoint, like strikes landed per minute, Fifth, uh, 5.15 versus 4.70. Like, Evoev is very, very crafty on the feeding. He's very, very well-rounded. But, yeah, the, the wrestling isn't elite like some of these other uh, savages we get from, like, Dagestan and stuff. So, yeah. and, and, and he, I mean, shit. I mean, I was on, I was on Tehugov last time out thinking that he was going to be able, he was going to go out there and, and really land some takedowns. He didn't really quite go for them. Like I was hoping, um, which was which was pretty painful to watch, uh, and that that fight was was scored as a split decision. But even as as someone with money on Tahugov, like there ain't no chance. Like Dewadu won that fight. It was uh, it was pretty clear as day to me. Uh, yeah, Dogger Pass situation for me as well. All right, we got Panny Kanzad taking on the other Canadian on the card, Alexis Davis. Panny Kanzad, minus 190. Davis, plus 165. Who you got? Yeah, this is another fight I don't particularly care all that much about. Just because, again, it's going to be close. It's going to be uh, a pretty tight fight all around. Alexis Davis, I don't get the greatest read on her anymore. Like, I would... Honestly, when you look at her, she just seems to have, like, her athleticism is is shot at this point. She's a lot slower than she used to be. She took some time away from the sport. She had a child. She came back. PJJ black belt, but her wrestling's fairly non-existent. So, you know, how do you get the fight to where you want it? But... The thing is, she's just another one of these girls similar to Lauren Murphy where she's just so tough, man. She's so tough. She's very difficult to put away, and she's got legitimate skills everywhere. As I mentioned, BJJ Black Belt, your judo game is actually not bad. Her wrestling's not bad, especially by the division standards. And her striking's good, you know? I mean, long Muay Thai um, base, 
struck with some of the best girls in the division, has great output, and the leg kicks is really nice as well. She's in a three-fight losing streak, but you got to give her credit. She loses to Caitlin Chikagian, you know, world title challenger. Jennifer Maya, world title challenger. Viviana Arroyo, who looks certainly very good, especially for the first two rounds, you know, is, is, is a high-level fighter. And then she draws Sabina Mazzo. Now, that's the UFC's matchmaking department's big problem here. You got a really young and green Sabina Mazzo taking on a fighter on a three-fight losing streak, but that's all you see. Beyond that three-fight losing streak, you have someone who's going the distance with the best girls in the division, who's fought for Strikeforce world title, who's uh, you know fought for a UFC world title against Ronda Rousey once upon a time, like has been at the highest, uh, the highest part of the mountain. She looked good in the Mazo fight. The two things that she did excellent in that Sabina Mazo fight was she got her own leg kick game going mm-hmm. and really, uh, I thought, compromised the lead leg of Sabina Mazo. But also when Mazo would try to kick her to return, she would catch the, those body kicks and just dump her to the ground. And when she was on the ground, I mean, it was leaps and above. Huge advantage for Alexis Davis. So she's able to coast it out, win a decision, look solid doing it. This Penny Kianzad fight, it's like, okay, if she stands with Penny Kianzad, who's got the advantage? I can see the leg kicks actually working out really good for Alexis Davis again here, but I'm not going to formulate the pick of just based on just leg kicks. Like, Penny should be able to take them and then outbox her. I think she's got the sharper hands. She's got a little bit more power. I just think she's a little bit of a better striker. When you look at Penny Kianzad's jab, you know, it's a, it's quick, it's nice, it's on the mark, right? Sabina Mazzo, most success she had in the fight was with the jab. You look at most of Alexis Davis's fights, she keeps her hands a little bit low, her head a little bit straight, and she, her face always gets busted up by the jab. Thing is, is that she just keeps moving forward. Eventually, the jab doesn't work. But I think Penny Kiedzab will be able to bloody her up with the jab, hopefully stay to the outside. And her takedown defense is much better than Mazo, A. And B, Mazo was giving up takedowns based on the caught kicks. So if Penny Kiedzab, who doesn't nearly throw kicks the same way, just minds your P's and Q's, she should be able to keep this fight standing. She should be able to edge it out. So it's like a never so slight pick for Penny Kiedzab. But again, it's not, a, it's not a fight that I would have like a, a ton of interest in betting. And at minus 190 over the minus 165 um, Davis, like at two to one, I need faith. I need confidence. Just, I'm not quite there yet. So as of now, it's leaning towards a pass for myself. But again, Wayne's can always change stuff. Um, the more info that you take in during the week could change stuff. Who knows? Check back come fight night. But uh, yeah, for right now, I'm going to go panic hands at the, the smart move though would probably just be take the pass. And yeah, the fights probably go in the distance, but I'm assuming they're not going to give you a price on that as well. It is yeah, minus three twenty. Like, yeah, 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 minus three fifty. You don't want that. Plus yeah, two seventy five. Um, yeah, and it like even like that. even Kianza by decision. Like I think I think Davis is is super super tough, super durable. But it's already it's already in the minuses. Like a lot of those like props, I've learned. It's just like I I want to be hitting these. You know the winner by whatever if you're giving me like a plus number in a lot of situations and right here it's just like minus 125 minus 120 minus 130 depending on the book that you're going to yeah i, I agree it's like kianza keeps it on the feet she's going to be able to box up uh lexus davis and now volume her but if davis is able to get it down to the ground a couple times uh she she could definitely exploit uh penny kianza and it could look a lot like 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 the uh, Sabino Sabina Mazo fight where Mazo's landing more when they're on the feet, but you know three takedowns for uh, Alexis Davis and and she wins the fight very 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 cleanly. Um, yeah, it's it's more of a pass situation. All right, we got Stephen Ocho Peterson taking on Chase Hooper minus one twenty Peterson plus one hundred Hooper. Uh, interesting fight. Obviously Chase Hooper we have seen. I mean, he's so young. 
He's so young. He's so developing. The stand-up is a massive, massive work in progress. I know that he went and spent some time with Ben Askren. He's been working on that wrestling. But, like, even the the videos that they posted of that is just, like, him pulling guard and, like, choking out a bunch of the wrestlers in the room at uh, Ben Askren's gym. Uh... I think the the play here on this fight is, and I th- I don't even know if it's a play because I think it's going to be super super sweaty. But from what I've seen from Chase Hooper, he's got like zombie level durability. Stephen Ocho Peterson, to my knowledge, has never been submitted. It, it just feels like I, I think the over two and a half rounds is the play here. It's it's pre- pretty much uh, it's pretty much a straight pick them regardless of like what book you go to right now. But that's one of those bets that. You play and it wins, but the entire time you're watching and you're shaking in your boots because either Steve Ojo Peterson is going to be landing strikes and Chase Hooper eats them just horribly, or Chase Hooper's going to like grab his back and he's going to be fishing for submissions. It's a it's a scary one altogether. No bet on it for me right now. It's hard to jump on Hooper to be perfectly honest, though. I think he's just got so much work to do still. So I'll, I'll pick Steven Ocho Peterson. My favorite bet on it is the over two and a half rounds. What's your take here? Yeah, I'm gonna agree. I think Chase Hooper at this point, you couldn't reasonably put money on him. Like, you know, he's 21 years old. We always knew that was gonna be a problem, but there's just massive red flags from top to bottom. Right? Mm-hmm. He's he's a jiu-jitsu guy. He's a one-dimensional jiu-jitsu guy who knows jiu-jitsu and is he world-class at jiu-jitsu no but that's his base he can't strike he can't wrestle but he knows jiu-jitsu and he's a long lanky guy um i with hooper we already know the lesson right but that same that same logic that same thing should have applied for me personally my bad guys that i had jordan leave it last weekend right jordan leave it is a one-dimensional grappler he's got no physical strength he's got no wrestling game he's got no striking okay but he can grapple but at some point, you're going to start fighting a guy who can grapple a little bit too. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, what, what are you falling back on? What do you got beyond that? That's his problem, man. Undefeated as an amateur, undefeated as a pro, signs Dana White's contender series. And at the time, right, he signs contender series. He's 18 years old. 18 years, 10 months. Technically speaking, the second youngest guy to ever fight for a Zufa organization because uh, Dan Lozon, Joe Lozon's younger brother, was like 18 and a half. He actually fought on a UFC card. But it's like, in what world does an 18-year-old jiu-jitsu kid with no other skills end up on the contender series? But he does. By the way, he gets beat up pretty good in the early portion of that fight, but comes back, wins a decision. Dana likes him. Dana can't give him a contract. He's going to get killed in the UFC. Didn't really look all that good right now. Developmental deal. Fights a guy that's seven and eight. First fight the development the developmental deal. Gets a draw. Seven and eight opponent Paul gets a draw out of it. It's that win over Luis Gomez. You know, Luis Gomez is actually pretty good. So Chase is able to take his back and choke him out. And now it looks like UFC ready because Luis Gomez would have, he's, you know, he's kind of would be like a fringe UFC guy, right? So Hooper's in the UFC now and it's just, it's already too much for him to handle, but we buy into it. I myself buy into it. And so I bet him over Daniel Tamor. And he does not look good in the Daniel Tamor fight, but he does get, oh, sorry, sorry. The Daniel Tamor fight's the only fight he looked good in. He takes him down and he absolutely thrashes him. But Daniel Tamor, David's brother, has no grappling, like zero grappling, nilch grappling. So when Hooper was eventually able to take him down, he styles on him. It's everything beyond that. The Bruce Leroy fight, I'm still on the high, I, I'm with it. You know what? He's so long and he's so lanky that he'll just take guys' backs. Maybe his wrestling's not good, but all he's got to do is clench him up against the cage. He'll be able to find the back, 
drag them to the ground, and jiu-jitsu is going to be that good. But what we saw in the Bruce Leroy fight was like, it's, it's not. His, his wrestling is non-existent. His striking is non-existent. And the few times that he actually did get Bruce Leroy to the ground, it was not effective. Bruce Leroy just more or less stood when he wanted to. So now you get slippery Pete Barrett. Should be a walk in the park. You know, we're, I'm, I'm back on him. Back on him one more time here. And it's the same thing, dude. Like the first two rounds he loses. He can't take Pete Barrett down. He can't stand with Pete Barrett. Pete Barrett's having his way. And then the third round, he snags up a knee bar. Like no doubt he's getting better, but he's still only 21. Come back in 10 years when you're 31. You'll be way better. Come back in five years. It'd be way better. But that's not, that's not my biggest problem, right? What Sage Northcutt was supposed to be a super prospect. They took him out of the confines of a small gym in Texas and put him at um, uh, TriStar. Goes to TriStar, spent a couple camps at TriStar, move him out of TriStar. They put him at Team Alpha Male, spent some time at Team Alpha Male. He, he's at least trying to develop at the highest level. Chase Hooper is not. Chase Hooper is just hanging out, doing his own things. They were doing those videos where he would train with Ben Askren. He didn't really train with Ben Askren. He doesn't, he's not working on his wrestling. He's just kind of doing his own thing. I don't think he's going to make a whole lot of improvements. You know, McLovin's eventually at some point going to run as far as he's going to get. And I think he's actually capped out pretty quick here. So Pete Barrett was this close to beating him. That is a serious, serious concern. Pete Barrett was whooping his ass the first two rounds and then he got submitted. Um, yeah, but like that's, that's how a you, massive like, cause for concern. That's happened a whole bunch of times in Pete Barrett's career. Like that was that yeah, was always well, going to be the path to victory, and that's going to be the path to victory until we see significant improvements for Chase Hooper. That's going to be the only path to victory for him, I think, at this level. Yeah, he's got to fall onto something. Now, honestly, with with Steven Peterson, like I know people will probably will say there's a lot of issues with Steven Peterson, but in and itself, like he's a savvy veteran of the game, dude. He's a 31 year old fighter with you know nearly 30 pro fights under his belt. He's competed at the UFC. He's given an okay account of himself. I believe he's two and two with the organization. He is coming off a two and a half year long layoff. Pulled out of a fight with Alon Cruz due to an injury. Pulled out of a fight with Sugo Choi due to an injury. That's all not good. No. The UFC is trying to give Hooper the most winningable fight they can. The problem is, is that Steven Peterson's a, he's a shit eating wild man. You know, he comes at you. His striking is wild. He'll throw a spinning back fist. He throws a lot of clubbing shots, but he's got good cardio, man. Submitting him off the table, dude. This guy's grappling is legitimately good. His mm-hmm. takedown defense, 75% throughout his UFC tenure, but I think good enough to stuff, to stuff Chase Hooper. The one thing is that he moves forward with both of his hands down and pretty much anybody could beat him to the punch and and make a very nice case for the judges, but not Chase Hooper. You know, no, that style that's... that Peterson does is actually going to work quite effective against Chase Hooper. He's just going to back him up and club him. He's going to club I... him around. He's going to stop the few takedowns that do come his way. And if for whatever reason he does get taken down, he's got to get back up. Stuff that he's shown a great ability to do in the past. So outside of long layoff, this is Peterson's to lose. Peterson is... 31 years old. So he's not, he's not, he's not over the hill quite yet. In my opinion, like he's still got some good fights to go, whether he had a few injuries, that's fine, but they're doing Hooper a favor. Nah, they're, they're doing him a favor. They're bringing him back to the UFC with what I would believe to be a very winnable fight. And so I also think this thing's going the distance. And for that, it is plus one Oh five. It depends. Yeah. Depending uh, on the book. Hooper's that, shown yeah. an ability to take a punch at least, you know, Bruce Leroy nailed him clean time and time again. Pete Barrett slapped him silly for the first 50, for the first 10 minutes yeah he survived long enough to get that's that the one i so, said off the top of this though that it's just yeah. like that's a type of bet that could be that is a winner but could be so sweaty you know what 
the more that we've talked about this, I think I'm just going to bet Steve Ocho Peterson minus 120. Fair enough. Just like, yeah, Hooper has been super durable, but yeah, he, he just eats shots. His striking defense is horrible. Like, if you have the wrong ref in there, could be one of those situations where he's just getting tagged on and, and they just kind of mercy stop it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. I think the best bet is actually, I, I said earlier that I thought that the over was the best bet, but you know what? The more you talk about it, I think it's Steven, Steven Ocho-Peterson. Obviously, coming off the layoff is a bit of a concern, but I'm, I'm adding him to the ticket. Let's go. This kid. This kid's too green. All right, moving on down. We got uh, for Ziam taking on Luigi Vendramini, minus 135 Ziam, plus 115 Vendramini. Watch tape on these guys this afternoon, and it's... They're both, you know, I think Ferris Ziam is 25 years old. Vendermini is 24. Uh, he made his debut when he was 20. Vendermini? Is he 24? Oh, he's 25. Yeah, sorry, 25 years old. Oh, now you got yeah, me. He made lo- his debut like Now you got me looking up stuff. He was 22. Oh, no, that was bad. two years ago. Now he's 20. Yeah. Well, he's 24 uh, according to <laughs> according to uh, Tapology. Either way, both of these guys are young. Both of them are developing. Both of them, uh, I think Zayam, it's pretty clear, has the more, you know, technical, solid striking. Uh, the other skills seem to be pretty developed for both of these guys. Uh, Avenger Bini in that fight against, uh, what was, what's the name of the guy? Uh, what was it? Sorry. Threw me off with the whole age thing. No, no, his his, his debut was no, against Zaleski, my guy, yeah, uh, Zaleski Dos Santos. Yeah. I mean, round one, he he put him in a whole bunch of trouble. He he jumped on his back. Uh, he's riding him out there. The the kid, the, both these guys seem to have some decent potential. Justin Ayari, he kind of just barges forward and 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 blasts away on him. Finds the finish uh, on the feet. Zayam's going to have a pretty big advantage. I would lean towards him as a bet, but I think both of these guys are still developing. I'm not sure who's going to be like the better grappler in the situations. I am in in uh, the Don Madge fight. He showed some decent, you know, get up ability, some decent ability when he's up against the cage to stay on his feet. Like I think both of these guys are pretty decent. They're obviously young prospects. I just don't find a mathematical edge after watching the tape on them that I could really lean on and suggest as a bet. So it's a straight up pass for me. I'll, I'll lean towards it for the purposes of a show as a pick. I'll say Zayam, but uh, I wouldn't fault anybody for being on either side of this uh, if they really think that they've got an edge. Uh, not for me. What about you? Yeah, dude, I honestly feel the same way. Like, it's hard to get a beat, and I think it's hard to get a beat because of Benjamini, right? It's what is he going to bring to the table. That's the problem. See, he's kind of a bit of anomaly, right? Dude did himself no favors, Starts his pro career at 20 years old in 2016, signs to the UFC and fights Zaleski DeSantis Santos in 2018, okay? So he's effectively been fighting for two years as a professional when he signs to the UFC. That's that's tough in and itself, okay? Problem number two is that he steps in to fight Zaleski DeSantos Santos on short notice. He's replacing Bilal Muhammad, so Zaleski gets a full camp. Biscuit's coming in on short notice to fight a legitimate guy in Zaleski DeSantos Santos who is training for a legitimate guy in Bilal Muhammad, doing it in no favors. Okay. Third thing he did himself wrong here, right? He fought 14, sorry, he fought 13 days before the Zaleski fight in Brazil, right? Mm. So 13 days before this, he takes a fight. Been fighting for two years. He takes a fight on 
very short notice after fighting three weeks earlier or two weeks earlier in Brazil against Zaleski dos Santos. And just because we need a cherry on the top here, Paul, he takes the fight at 170 pounds and he's a natural 55. So like, was he going to lose? Yeah. Yeah. How do you overcome all that? But I'll be damned, dude. That back take in the first round was legit. So Zaleski outstrikes him in the, in the early portion, the first takedown attempt that, um, that Benjamini goes for. It's a caught kick, and then he just like falls flat on his face. It's not very inspiring. But the second one's much better. Well, you see Zaleski go for that Peruvian necktie. Once he works his way out of it, when they get back up, it's a nice outside trip, takes him down, backpacks him immediately, body triangles him. Once the fight goes back to the ground, I mean, he does an excellent job of riding him, back up, and then with 90 seconds left, Zaleski frees himself, and you can tell Benjamini right then and there is starting to fatigue. Survives that first round, gets caught with the fly knee in the second. But no doubt about it, considering everything he just went through, two, two years as a pro, short note, all of that, good account of himself. But now he takes a long layoff between that and the Yes and Iari fight, or Jess and Iari. It's two years almost to the day, like two years and a month um, that he takes off. So now he comes back and it's like, well, what version of this guy's coming back? But he comes back at 55, mm-hmm. his actual weight class, and he gets a full camp something you haven't seen before. And even though we know about that ground game, we know he's a strong guy. He's also had a constrictor team in Brazil who are known as powerhouse grapplers is his hands were fast, man, and strong. Ayari's got a very good chin. Ayari went 15 minutes against Darren Till in a welterweight fight. But like Benjamini hit him and immediately got his attention and then eventually topples him over. The kid's fired up. He's excited. But again, still only 25 years old. The time off did him good. He's got fast hands. He's got big power. And uh, he's got a good ground game. This is my issue when I'm looking at him, though, right? In nine pro fights, he's been to the third round one time. In that third round, he knocked the guy on 33 seconds. All nine of his career victories are inside the distance. His one career loss is also inside the distance. So I don't know if he's got a gas tank. And he fights like he, he fights heavy. He grapples heavy. He strikes heavy. So I'm leaning towards that he doesn't have a gas tank, despite the fact he's only 25. We assume he has one. He's never been stretched. He's never been into deep waters. And the one time that Zaleski is debut, again, so much going against him, mm-hmm. is that he did look tired about three minutes into that first round. So I guess what I'm getting at is, even though I think he could have a lot of success here with the ground game, uh, if he tires, we're going to have a problem. <clears throat> now, the flip side to Faraz Zaham is that he can't wrestle, man. Don Madge is a South African Muay Thai fighter, taking him down at will. Jamie Malarkey, flat robbery, whoa, whoa, flat robbery. Whoa, whoa, right? whoa. I got to taking him down at me. will is a, is a yeah, massive right, overestimation right. of what it's just, I was fired up because it's a South African Muay Thai fight. You're too fired up wrestling. there, kid. Like, he took, him, real he took him down though. once and he was trying to take him down a bunch. I thought the kid had like, he looked okay. He didn't look like a complete fish out of water. We know he's a kickboxer, but like he's working on those other he's skills. He's a good kickboxer. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you, you, you have to if you're going to compete in MMA. But it wasn't inspiring to see him lose his UFC debut on the basis of he actually got taken down three times by Don Madge, and he landed effectively 10 strikes over the course of 15 minutes. So he's defensive wrestling the entire time. He's got his back pressed up against the cage for the majority of the time. Oh, yeah, you're and right. And he gets right. three I'm takedowns wrong. against Don Madge. Now the fight with Jamie Malarkey, that's a fight where he gets taken down at will. He gives up five takedowns. He spends the majority of the time off his back. And yes, he's out striking Malarkey when they're standing. He should not have won that decision. As far as I'm concerned, he's um, 0-2 in the UFC, and his ground game has kind of cost him in both those spots. So with Vendramini, Vendramini took down Zaleski Dos Santos, a welterweight, a big welterweight, with a nice takedown. 
He's strong. He lifts him clean off off the ground, and then he backpacks him and takes his back. He wants Zion down. He's taking Zion down. Herein lies the cardio question, is that if he's not, Zion's durable, right? Zion, we see him get taken down. We see him survive. We see him get back up to his feet. When he is standing, dude's got a long-ass reach, man. Dude's a long-ass reach. He loves to throw the kicks. He likes to throw the knees. You know, he's one of these French Muay Thai stylists that'll just put it on you. Benjamini wins the first round. Zayam is able to work his way back into it in the second round. In the third round, I would assume if it got that far, would would, would be Zayam. But if anything, I'm looking at live live bet. You can bet Zayam after he drops the first round and get a much better price on him, or you can bet Benjamini now. And if he banks that first round, and you know, I don't, I don't know, it doesn't matter. I think gun to my head, I'm going Benjamini. You're going Zayam gun to your head. We're, we're both agreeing. Hard to get a positive read. Mm-hmm. Probably a pass situation all around. But uh, I, I'm an op, like a, I'm an optimist, and the optimist side of me is like the cardio is not as bad as you're making it out to be, right? I don't know. It's a it's a gray area. It's an assumption. I have to put faith into an assumption. Don't love doing that. But hey, it's a gun to your head, right? You got You got to do something. And in this case, uh, I'm gonna say Benjamini has made those improvements enough to get the job done on the basis of the wrestling and the grappling. Yeah, I guess the these stats when I'm looking at, I, I hadn't looked at the stats. I'd watched Zayam's two fights. These stats are kind of surprising to me because I didn't think he was like a complete fish out of water when he was taken down. But yeah, f- taken down five times by Malarkey, three times by Madge. A lot of that fight against Madge was like up against the cage and Madge is like yeah. fighting with him trying to get those takedowns. It was kind of a nothing fight. Anyway, it doesn't sound like either one of us is all that interested in it. Uh, I feel like we're, at least for the entertainment purposes of it, we're going to be interested in this next one. We got Carlos Felipe taking on Jake, uh, the prototype. Do we still call him that, even though he's 250 <laughs> pounds at this point? Uh, yeah, Collier, yeah, yeah. who uh, is, sorry, it's minus 170 Felipe, plus 145 Collier. We've made some jokes at Collier's expense on this program, but here's the take here, Cody. We only make fun of Jake Collier because we have seen him as a middleweight and he was, you know, in great shape. And then he shows back up a couple years later and he's just let it all go. But he's pretty, you know, for being a a big boy, he's pretty, uh, uh, he's very mobile on his feet uh, as evidenced in his last fight against John Volante. Carlos Felipe, if he used to be a middleweight, and I'm sure at some point maybe he was only like, Maybe he was 12 years old. I don't know. But at some point in his life, he was a middleweight as well. We just didn't see it. We just always assumed, you know, that he's kind of big, clunky. You know, we call him Thick Diaz for a reason. I mean, if he had the same type of path where he was a welterweight and then all of a sudden he showed up as a heavyweight, you know, we would he would be in the same type of position. Like, both of these guys are about the same size. Felipe looks like a guy who, if he was you know, dieting and at peak physical ability, he would also be like a middleweight type of body frame. So we got to stop making fun of Jake Collier in this situation because both of these guys kind of have the same body type. Um, They opened up this line at like minus 230 for Felipe. And then there was like a plus 200 for Collier. People have been betting that all week long. I can't really fault them on that. Uh, it's a dog or pass situation. I think that uh, we really did see some holes in the game of Felipe against Tafa, where he really was slowing down, especially he got into round three there. He's gassing a little bit up against the cage. It was getting a little bit sloppy. 
I think I think Collier is the play here at plus one forty five if you're forced to. But we've already missed the best part of this line between the two of them. Um, it'll be a fun, sloppy, heavyweight fight between two guys that probably could be middleweights, or at the very least, could be two hundred and five pounders uh, if they, you know, they got a nutritionist. But dog or pass situation for me. What about you? Yeah, both of these guys, their personal history is almost like polar opposites of each other. So dig this. This is ripped right from Carlos Felipe's bio, right? Born in Ferro de Santa Bahia, Brazil, 1995, Carlos Felipe was bullied throughout his childhood for being overweight. At age 14, Felipe weighed in at 346 pounds. Felipe was morbidly obese and his family tried everything, but nothing seemed to help him lose weight. After trying many different ways to lose weight, various diets and supplements, Felipe says boxing helped him get the weight off. And he drops from 346 to 275 in the first year. And now from 275 down to like that 240 mark, like you're saying, does, is, is he a middleweight? Is he a light heavyweight? Could be. But pretty crazy that he's gone from all that weight and like turned his life around and went from that personal adversity. But as a kid, he's bullied because he's morbidly obese. And now he's put it together and is respectable. Whereas Jake Collier, quite the opposite, starts his career off in good shape and now gets bullied for being morbidly obese. So, you know, different situations across the board. This is going to be one hell of a fun fight. Extremely interested in it. But yeah, man, I'm kind of thinking Jake Collier as well. Like here's the two, here's a couple things with Carlos Felipe initially signs to the UFC and then gets flagged right off the get-go for a USADA supplement. So now when you officially see him make his debut, he hadn't fought over two years. He had taken a boxing match, which had gone to the distance there wasn't really a whole lot of body of work on him. The fight with Sergey Spivak, yeah, striking looked okay, I guess, in that first round, but his cardio fell off, and when Spivak was eventually get, able to get the fight to the ground, he dominated there, wins the fight. Now the Jorgen DeCastro fight. The first two rounds are close. He's winning. But in the third round, Jorgen would just press him up into the cage, and seemingly, Carlos Felipe had no idea how to get out of it. No, just no, no ability to get his back up off against the cage. So I rewatched it in the Spivak fight. Every time Spivak pushes him into the cage, he chops him with a, an elbow, right elbow over the top, and then disengages. He never tries to press him into the cage. But Jorgen just by default presses him into the cage and has a lot of success. Now you get this Justin Toffa fight. Toffa can't wrestle. He's not a grappler. Primary striker. First round, Justin Toffa wins the round, right? Better strikes, better strike selection, landing better, one nothing Toffa. Second round, the first three and a half minutes of the round, or Justin Toffa's. He's winning the round, doing the same thing. He's a better striker. There's like 90 seconds left in the round, and uh, Carlos Felipe just goes gangbuster on and lands a bunch of like heavy shots. Some of them glance, doesn't really matter, but is able to steal that second round. And then the third, they're both tired. But when you know it, Justin Toffa does the same thing Jorgen DeCastro does. He just, by default, just pressed him right into the cage. And against Felipe's just not, no ability to get his back up off against the cage. Uh, his striking's choppy. It's it's good for heavyweight. He's got a good jab. I like that right hand over the top that he throws. He throws it a little bit too much. His biggest thing is for heavyweight, he's got excellent cardio, man. He just keeps coming. And that's why he's winning. You know, him and Jorgen's close early, but he pulls away on him. And him and Justin Toffa's early, but he pulls away a little bit on him. He's got good cardio. Um, but against Jake Collier, you know, if we hadn't seen Jake Collier versus John Volante, we'd be laughing him off again. Oh man, this guy takes a three-year-long layoff, comes back, gets bombed by Tom Aspinall. In the Aspinall fight, Aspinall opens it up with a one-two, and the right hand thumps him, stuns him. Okay, the very next selection he throws is a one-two 
and it hits Collier. Not as bad, but it does land. The very third combination he throws is a fake to a kick and a one-two down the pipe, and that right hand knocks him out. He throws a one-two three times consecutively and knocks out Jake Collier. Ba- bad look, but Tom Aspinall, legitimate heavyweight banger. It's that fight with John Vellante where he proves the critics wrong and to prove myself wrong. His cardio was unreal, man. He just kept coming forward the entire time. He never gave Jean Vellante a time to breathe. No. And Vellante's not exactly elite-level fighter by any stretch of the imagination. But Collier's punches were good, man. They were fast. He was sharp. He was much faster than the Aspinall fight. And he physically even looked slightly in better shape than the Aspinall fight. But yeah. I mean, the Aspinall significant... fight... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, uh, you, were, you were saying how many significant strikes he was going to land. Well... He lands, he lands 123 against John Vellante. But this yeah. is the key here. He throws 277 total strikes, 272 of which were significant strikes. He just battered him the entire time. The first round, he had lands him 49 to 27. The second round, 38 to 30. And the third round, 36 to 23. But even in the third round, he's still throwing 79 strikes, moving forward the entire time. How do you beat Jake Collier? Well, Aspinall would suggest that maybe his chin's not that good. Touch him and he'll go down, right? The Jean Vellante situation, once Jean wasn't able to get his respect, he got backed up. When I think about Carlos Felipe, he's not actually a power puncher himself. Like, he's a big heavyweight. He loves throwing with reckless intention. But keep in mind, all three of his UFC fights have gone to decision. His pro boxing match he took while he was suspended went to decision. The last time he's knocked down an opponent was four years ago. So he's not really the biggest hitter. If he doesn't get Collier off him, Collier's going to back him up. And I go back to him losing that first round with Justin Toffa, him losing the first three minutes of the Toffa fight. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad look. He can get outworked. And so the last point here is Jake Collier as a, as a middleweight, remember the Marcel Fortuna fight, I guess that would have been maybe light heavyweight. That would have been middleweight. 94 significant strikes landed cool. Then he takes all this time off. To see him come back with that kind of output is great. But with Carlos Felipe, him at his best, he got outstruck 86 to 77 against Tafa. You know, he only landed 78 strikes against Jorgen De Castro. He had 44 in the Spivak loss, but he was taken down in the Spivak loss. If he goes out there and 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 just I think he's gonna get at work. I think I think there's a world in which he gets at work by Jake Collier. Jake Collier keeps moving forward. And Jake Collier, if he's smart, if he's got ring IQ, he can literally win the first three, four minutes of the fight, back him up, and press him into the cage. It's free points. He has no ability to get his back up against the cage. I know Collier's not a grappler, but there's there's a plan B in play as well. If you're not getting the best of the strikes, you can push him into the cage. He was bleeding a lot in the Jean Vellante fight. He did get busted up, but it didn't affect his performance. And so as long as he just minds his P's and Q's and can fight replicate that same thing, I think he'll have a lot of success. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, this is a card where I just love underdogs from top to bottom. I think there's a very solid argument that you can make about almost any dog underdog on the card and Jake Collier's, you know, slight underdog selection. I, uh, I, I think that there's some merit to him. I think Carlos Felipe will get better down the road, but for right now, he's still in a small gym in Brazil. Like he hasn't left the confines of his comfort zone. I think he could, I think, I think that's going to lead to his detriment. The only thing that could save him is he's got blonde hair right now. He's got like bleach blonde hair, which as you've seen from Derek Bronson and Charles Oliveira and so, and so like it powers you up, man. These guys have, Bleach blonde hair ain't losing right now for some reason. I don't know what it is, but it's been effective. So at least in the world of superstitions, he's going to have an advantage there. But outside of that, I'm going to give Collier a shot here. All I was going to say is comparing Carlos Felipe to 
Tom Aspinall is just is just generally a waste of time. One guy's actually a big time heavyweight with heavyweight power, and then we're dealing with two other guys that probably, if things were working a little bit more, you know, their bodies were working a little bit more for them, wouldn't even be fighting in this weight class. Yeah, and, and obviously Carlos Felipe hasn't really shown to have any sort of power uh, on Aspinall's level. So I, I I'm not concerned about what happened in that Collier fight uh, when it comes to Jake Collier. Or, sorry, what happened in that Aspinall fight when it comes to Jake Collier. And finally, we got Matt Frivola taking on Terrence McKinney. Uh, uh, Frivola, minus 265. McKinney, plus 225. Frivola was supposed to take on... Uh, what's his face Frank again? Camacho. Uh, Frank, Frank Macho Camacho. And uh, obviously Camacho, hopefully he gets better, but he got into a car accident this week and it didn't look very good. He's uh, been hospitalized. And so wishing him all everything good and hopefully a, a speedy recovery for him. McKinney comes in. We, you may remember him from Contender Series. I mean, round one against Sean Woodson, he's, he's putting Woodson in some spots, putting him in some trouble. And uh, Woodson's able to survive. And then in round two... Uh, Woodson literally just, you know, clips him once, able to finish him up against the cage. Uh, it, you go through McKinney. I mean, it's easy to do tape study for McKinney, especially his, like his last two LFA fights. They're just, they're both like under 20 seconds. And this guy is like throwing jumping kicks and landing on his back. Like he is going balls to the wall, looking for finishes. All of these cowardly books out here. Nobody is laying a total for this fight. I want to get all dirty and greasy up in this over-under. I don't know what it is yet, but when it drops, I've been, like, refreshing all day long. I, and now we're, now we're giving out, out, out the, the tip online before I'm even able to bet it. But, like, the under, I, I imagine this fight's going to have, like, it's, it's not rocket science. You look at, like, his record, you see all these first-round finishes. It's pretty rare for him to get into a third round. It's gonna have to be a one and a half type of situation. I would be, I mean, bet as much as you can if it's like a two and a half rounds type of spot. I, honestly, I would bet it up to the over under under to two minus two hundred. Honestly, uh, if it was a one and a half, I would I would bet it, but I wouldn't be ex- too excited. It would be like a standard like one unit play type of thing. Um, if we get anything better than that, I'm going to be finding every single book that I have and just laying, laying it. Like I, you know, Terrence McKinney coming in on short notice. What's he trying to do in literally all of his fights that I see? He's just trying to like pressure forward. Doesn't really care about position over anything. Like he's just trying to knock your head off or take you down, look for submissions. Like he's just after it. Favola has had a history of having a little bit of a chin issue in some spots. I think his grappling is going to hold up. I, I'm picking for Vola to win, but God, they're really making me wait. I was hoping that by the time that we finished recording this show that somebody would be posting a, a refreshed again, that somebody would be posting a total on this fight. Um, if the number's right, it's the play of the card in my humble opinion. What's your take here? Yeah, I think they'll probably set the total at one and a half as well. You've got uh, McKinney coming in. 
Terrence McKinney, it, he's just super explosive. Like if he t- he can knock you out, he wrestles hard. Like he's just one of these dynamic guys that's going to be a problem for almost anybody for the first five minutes, for mm-hmm. the first six seven minutes, and then after that, his game kind of does fall apart. And Matt Favola is kind of the opposite. He himself is a bit of a slow starter, but uh, yeah, I mean. Once once he overcomes that slow start, I mean, he just keeps going. They call him the steam roller, but really, like, he's like a steam engine. Like, it takes some time to build up, but once it does get built up, he's solid. He came to the UFC, and, like, I wasn't expecting absolutely nothing from this guy whatsoever. I mean, he fights uh, Polo Reyes and gets knocked out in the first round. Dropped twice, knocked out a minute into the round. His next fight against Lando Venata, he gets dropped in the in this first round twice. But he works his way back into it and he keeps coming. And that's when you see the resilience from him and the grind from him. His wins over Jalen Turner and Luis Pena and, you know, the, going the distance with Armin Sarukian, it's all just that same blue-collar, hardworking type game plan type effort out of him. But a guy that's training every single day with Aljamain Sterling, training every single day with Rob Devashvili, what do you think is going to get improve? Everything. And that's what he is making. He's making improvements everywhere. Him versus Frank Camacho was interesting. It was a fight that was already booked. I would say that Camacho is the better striker. Favola's got the better ground game. But Favola's tenacity and cardio was going to win the win it out for him. He was going to eventually get Camacho to the ground. Even though Camacho is a black belt himself, Favola would have his way. He would break him down, and then cardio would play the biggest factor. He gets the victory. Camacho out. Hopefully, everything's okay with him, as you mentioned. And he draws Terrence McKinney late. The game plan doesn't change. You know, McKinney's going to come out there. He's probably going to be a little more athletic faster, better wrestler early, striking's going to be dangerous, mind your P's and Q's. But outside of that first round, he's going to break McKinney down, probably put him away. Um, McKinney's, you know, a decent prospect all around. He's a guy that wrestled in Nebraska for a little bit collegiately and wrestled at, I believe, North Idaho College for a little bit as well. But then his life kind of spiraled out of control before he found MMA and kind of redeemed himself. Does he got the skills all day? but he's got to put it all together. He's still very green, and that, that's his biggest issue. He's just too green. When he fought Sean Woodson, the first round he dominates him with the takedowns. The second round he walks into the flying knee. He was tiring, though. That's the biggest thing. He burnt himself out wrestling so hard in the first round. Learning experience. You know, you're undefeated. you got to learn to get better, see where you got to make improvements. Fine. The very next fight against Derek Minner, he shoots himself right into a triangle choke. So now we've got two blunders on his record. I know that he's been looking really good lately, three-fight winning streak. Two for the LFA organization. Doesn't look like he's but again, slowed it's, it's, down it's, though. Like yeah, he, he goes for it. Like that's why that's how he fights, man. Uh, that's how he fights. I mean, his last three fights, uh, what we got one minute and twelve seconds, seconds against Ortiz, seconds. seventeen seconds against Gavino, and sixteen seconds against Dedrick Sanders, which are obviously lower level competition. But like he just shoots out of a canyon and he's trying to kill you, and like he just doesn't. It's it's just maybe that's what he does on the LFA, but it's kind of the same thing as Woodson. Woodson was just able to take it and then and then find the finish later on. Um, yeah, this, yeah, this guy is a under machine. Um, hopefully, the odds are uh, favorable. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree, man. So I'm going to take Frivola, and uh, I, I when they announced the totals on that, the over one and a half, I would oh. think is what they're going to set it at, and I'm leaning yeah. towards that under. And then that uh, that under two and a half, I mean, it seems like if they give you a reasonable line there, you'd want to jump on that. And as far as the straight up pick goes, is Frivola. Frivola's will have the most danger of being, you know, upset in that first round. Mm-hmm. If he can extend outside of that first round, this should be his his fight. 100%. All right, we are just about out of time. But before we go, hit him with the PRP. Okay, man, we got a dog-heavy PRP this week, but... Uh, 
as she goes. I know I'm going to take a lot of flack for this. I get it, but I'll, I'll go Marvin Vittoria as an underdog in the main event. I'm going to take Brandon Moreno as an underdog in the co-main event. Leon Edwards. Uh, I'll go Blah Muhammad. We've talked about it. Got thoughts. Live underdog situation. But I'll admit, I am an ageist. You always bring that up. So I will go Blah Muhammad. Jamal Hill. Brad Riddell is going to be our dog number three. We're going to go Eric Anders. Joanne Calderwood. Hakeem Duwadu, dog number four. That one could change. Panny Kianzad, Matt Frivola, Steven Peterson is basically even money. Luigi Vendramini is going to be dog number five. Jake Collar is going to be dog number six. So currently we've got a seven-fight card. I'm thinking six of these 14 fights are going to go the way of the underdog. And I'm not taking Damian Maya, who's an underdog with a chance. I'm not taking Drew Dober. or I, I, I Actually, Brad Riddell is the underdog, and I have him. Uh, who's another dog with a chance? You know, Lauren Murphy is a dog with a chance. Lexus Davis is a dog with a chance. Terrence McKinney would have to get it done in the first round, but certainly he's live. Um, there's a lot of dogs that might be barking on this one. I had a theory last week, but this is why I'm not going to do it because it didn't really make any money. But I had a theory last week that I would, as a test run, just write it out, not bet it, see how the results are, and then look at, is that something you could approach for a card going forward? Is that if you would have just bet $100, one unit, whatever, every single underdog. So Claudio Puelas wins. You're up $140. Sean Woodson wins. Now you've got 40 bucks because he's a favorite. Mm-hmm. Faro wins. Now you're you got $60. You're down 60 bucks. Then you get a no contest. Kwamala Kirk wins. Now you're up. You're at 260. Salikov wins. You're at 160. Latifi wins. You've been at 290. Montel and De La Rosa wins. You're at 190. Gregory Rodriguez wins. You're at over $300. You're like $320. Ponzinibbio wins. Now you're at $425. Roman Deletes wins. You're down to $325. Tybora wins. You're down to $225. Rosenstruck wins. You would have made $125 to just bet all the underdogs in last week's card. And I'm a favorite guy. You guys give me flack all the time for it. You know I love me and my favorites. But there was a lot of underdogs last week that had a chance. That's why it ended up being it. I look at this week's card, and I think the exact same thing, man. If you put a unit, or in this case, even if you just put $10 just for fun, on every single one of these underdogs, I got a feeling you're walking away profitable, man. And, th- and, and they're not just plus 135, plus 145. Like these are legitimate underdogs with good value associated with them. So this is a wickedly fun pay-per-view. I think this is a car that everybody can get behind. Obviously, the only thing funner than watching entertaining fights is winning some money. So that's always the goal at the end of it. Um, but yeah, really looking forward to Saturday, buddy. Yeah, all right. I'll just say what I've got my money on right and right now. And what I'm going to add um, when we get off the program here, we've got Adesanya Edwards as a parlay because Floyd Mayweather, uh, I mean, he turned it into an exhibition match. Uh, probably could have got the finish. It was but turned it into he, an exhibition. It was always an exhibition. I know, though. but right like he just, he didn't want to, he didn't want to knock the kid out. It is what it is. Um, so that ended up voiding it. So I have an Adesanya Edwards parlay. Um, I ended up betting Anders on the program here. I'm going to bet Steve Ocho Peterson. I'm going to throw a sprinkle on, uh, the Craig Hill under one and a half plus 100 and God almighty, one of you books post a damn total on Frivola versus McKinney. Stop being so scared. Um, cause I want to bet a home. lot of money on that. Yeah. In the words of, uh, Diaz brothers, uh, don't be scared, homie. Uh, they are super scared because they know. They know. People are just waiting to just jam money on that under, I'm sure. They've got to be. 
They've got to be. You can't watch Terrence McKinney fights and not be like, this is this is an under guy. All right, uh, that more or less wraps it up for us this week. Want to thank Pat Mayo for all his sweet cuts behind the scenes there. Want to thank Cody Safdick for being on the line and gracing us with his great picks as always. For Pat and Cody, I'm Paul saying goodbye and good luck. Oh, oh, oh. Oh.